as as Christians, as church people, we have certain um, I, I don't know if you call them catchphrases, scriptures, lines that we like to we like to use. Usually, it's it's scripture, or a portion of scripture that we take, and then we like to we like to apply it in a certain way. It doesn't even matter if we even really understand what it means. We just like what it says. Does that does that make sense? So sometimes we do things, and then if we can, we put them on a plaque, and then we stick them on our wall. Do you know what I'm talking about? And we'll do this. So there are people who have the Lord's Prayer hanging in their house, and they haven't prayed in 15 years. Do you know what I mean? Or there's, there's a home that has, you know, God gives us a peace that passes all understanding, and the place is filled with chaos. Or they have, you, uh, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll rise up with wings as eagles, and they're the most impatient people that you know, because they don't wait on anything, you know, and it's, that's concept. Now, now, that's not a bad thing. Many of us would be familiar, probably, with, with this passage of Scripture. In fact, I'm going to guess that somebody in this room has this on their wall somewhere in their home. It's, it's very common, and uh, I borrowed this one from a friend. I don't know if he told his wife that it's missing, but if she... <laughs> Didn't see it this morning. It's because I have it. And real big here, it says family. And I don't know if you see down below. It says, as for me and my house, we will. Do you know the rest? We will serve the Lord. And so there's this powerful scripture. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. And many of us take this and we put it on our walls or we put it on a Bible case or we put it somewhere where we'll see it, where we'll remember it. And there is nothing wrong with that. In fact, Scripture actually encourages it. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the things that God encouraged the Israelites to do was to make sure that the truths about God, that the Scripture about who He was permeated everything about their lives. He said that you talk about it when you get up and when you sit down, when you walk along the road and when you're with your children. He says even to put it in places, put it on your walls, put it where you will see it. So the idea of having Scripture in places where you will see it is is a biblical thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a great reminder that the trick is, will we actually live it out and this is one of those verses in fact for many of us we're familiar with it as for me and my house we will serve the lord but do we know what it means do we know when it was said do do we even know who said it and we've been in a series of messages on the book of joshua and this morning we come to joshua chapter 24 we come to the very end of the book we'll wrap up this series next week but today i want to talk about this passage of scripture i want to talk about these verses and what they really mean why they're so important who said it when they said it and why it matters to us joshua chapter 24 is where we find this very familiar and well-known passage of scripture and uh, when we read it we we find joshua addressing the israelite people quite possibly for the very last time This is the last time in scripture that we have a record of him standing before the thousands of Israelites and giving them basically a state of the union address. This is his last speech to them. And in it, he begins by recounting God's faithfulness. He begins by talking about the way that God was there for them. He goes all the way back to Abraham, and he talks about how God led through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He talks about Moses and them being in uh, Egypt as slaves and then being delivered into the promised land. And then he comes down to the heart of what he's trying to say. Verse 14, Joshua chapter 24. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This was for Joshua 
not just another moment. Now, we don't know exactly how it went down. Scripture doesn't show us, but in my mind, this is how I imagine that moment happening. That just before he stepped out to speak in front of these thousands of Israelites, just before he left his tent for that last moment, what went through his mind? What was he thinking in those last moments before he stepped out of the threshold of his tent and stood in front of thousands of people to give this address? This moment wasn't just another speech. It wasn't just some cute word that he hoped some people thousands of years later would put on their walls. This was a decisive moment for Joshua. This was a key time in his history and in his existence. It was critical for the nation of Israel to hear this. And so Joshua stood in his tent waiting to go out and deliver this speech. And what ran through his mind in that moment? What do you think he was thinking? Now this wasn't the first time that he'd done this. Probably many, many times before he had stood in his tent and prepared to go out and address the Israelites to speak to them something that they needed to hear. We know he did it before they crossed the Jordan. We know he did it before they went around Jericho. We know he did it when it was time for them to, to, uh, to prepare themselves and make themselves ready to consecrate themselves for what God wanted to do. But this time was the last time. And he probably looked back on many of the other times. Many other times when he stood and was ready to walk out of his tent. Many other times when he stood outside of Moses' tent. Because he was Moses' right-hand man. And he stood there waiting for Moses to come out and address the people. And I, I don't know this for a fact. But if I had to speculate that in those moments before Joshua walked out and gave his last address to the people, he thought about his life. He thought about where he'd come from. He thought about what he'd been through. And he gave a moment to pause and think about his story. Because here's what we find. It's true in Joshua's life and it's true in your life. Life is a series of decisive moments. These moments where we have to decide what to do. When we have to decide how we're going to respond. When we have to decide what really is important and what really matters for us. And I'm going to guess that Joshua, in that moment before he walked out for his final address, took a moment to think about his life. And what I want to do today, kind of in a, in a bit of a different way, rather than just walking through a lot of chapter and verse and different points that we talk about on the screens, today I just want to kind of tell you a story. I want to tell you one man's story. I want to look at the life of Joshua. And I want to give you certain words that would describe who he was throughout his life. Things that he probably thought as he was standing there in his tent, getting ready to step out and address these thousands of Israelites for one last time. What were the ways in which Joshua would have thought about himself? The ways in which he would have described himself? And the first word that I would use today is probably one that we don't think of that often. See, the first word that would describe Joshua, in fact, the original way that he ever would have been described, was as a slave. You know, we think of him as a warrior and as a leader, but we forget that Joshua was born in captivity in Egypt. He was a slave of the Egyptians. Now, the Israelites had gone there hundreds of years before when they were escaping the famine, and, and God had used Joseph in Egypt to provide for them and to give them what they would need to survive. But after that, the Israelites stayed there, and they became slaves, captives of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians used the Israelites to do backbreaking labor to build their empire. They weren't seen as people of value. They weren't seen as people who had worth. They were just brickmakers. Joshua was just another worthless brickmaker. That's what he was born into. No one would have ever looked at him and said, that dude's going to be a leader. That dude's going to change the world. Thousands of years from now, they'll talk about him. No, when he was born, he was just seen as someone else on whose back Egypt could build their empire. He was just a worthless slave. That's how he started his life. 
Not by what God saw, but by other people saw and what they said about him. And many of us probably have experienced and found ourselves in that same place. He was a slave. He was someone who had heard that his life didn't have much value. But God looked at him and said, you're not a slave. You're not worthless. I'm going to change the world through you. I see something in you that others can't see, that others don't say, and you can't even see about yourself. And isn't it good to know that our life doesn't find its worth in what other people think and say about us, but what God thinks and says about us? Isn't that true? That's a good truth. That's something we need to hang our hats on. That's where Joshua started as a slave in Egypt. And I wonder what it was like the first time he heard the name Moses. Could you imagine All of a sudden, somebody walks into his neighborhood and says, Moses is back. Who's Moses? Well, Moses was a prince in Egypt, but then he killed an Egyptian, and he's been gone about 40 years. We didn't know what happened to him. We just heard stories about him, but now he's back. He says God sent him, and God says that he's going to rescue us, that he's going to deliver us from the Egyptians by using Moses to do it. And I wonder if Joshua was hopeful or skeptical. I probably would be a little bit of both, wouldn't you? Who's this guy? And what's he thinking? Rolling in here and saying he's going to help us out. And yet we know from scripture that from a young age, Joshua had a connection with Moses, became an an accomplice, became an assistant to him and helped him out. And he had this relationship that was there. And then Joshua had, think about this for a minute, he had a front row seat to the plagues in Egypt. Do you remember that story in the book of Exodus? How God says to to have Moses tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, they're not going anywhere. They're building my bricks. They're not leaving here. And God begins to send plagues. And he sends flies and he sends gnats and he sends frogs. He kills livestock. He turns a river to blood. All really cool stuff in a movie, right? Wouldn't want to live it. Joshua had a front row, including the night. The night that God said, I'm going to send an angel of death through Egypt and every firstborn male will die because I want Pharaoh to know that I'm not kidding the only thing that will save the firstborn males from dying is if there's a sacrifice and then the blood of that sacrifice is placed over the door frames of the house and if the blood is there when I see the blood the angel will pass over that home are you familiar with the term Passover it was a feast that the Israelites instituted to be able to celebrate God's grace and his forgiveness and his provision and his deliverance to them. Joshua was a slave in Egypt. He saw all that. He knew all that. So when he left Egypt, that's why they instituted the Passover. They had this feast. And then years later, 40-some years later, we read this in chapter 5 of Joshua, when he was in the Promised Land, they started this feast up again because it was a good time for them to remember what God had done for them. See, Joshua wasn't just a slave. He was also delivered he knew what it was like to have god bring him freedom he knew what it was like to be one thing and then have god set him free and help him to be something else joshua was a person who had known deliverance and that's why they would stop at passover and give thanks did did you have a good thanksgiving It's, it's a it's a neat time isn't it you get together with friends and family maybe you see people you haven't seen in a while you eat and then you talk and then you eat and then you watch some TV, and you take a nap, and then you eat. It's wonderful, isn't it? This is kind of what we do. Why is it so important? That's all fun, and that's all good. But at the heart of it is gratitude, isn't it? 
of pausing to say thanks. I hope you didn't miss that in this last few days. That time when we stop and recognize the blessings we have and the people that are around us and even more in what God has done for us. It's important that we stop and we say thanks because if we don't have gratitude built into our lives somewhere, our focus becomes distorted. And our efforts in life are just done in vain. At some point, we have to stop and remember to be thankful or it just messes us up on the inside. When I, when I get grumpy or when I start to feel like, like I'm, I'm not being treated right or when I get to a place where I'm feeling like I'm entitled about something, you know the very best thing that I can do? I can write some thank you notes. I just need to stop and thank people. I need to take a moment and pause and show some gratitude and be thankful for what God has done for me because what happens is if I don't, then I get all messed up on the inside. I would encourage you with this. The reason that God said to keep Passover every year, the reason why Thanksgiving for us as Americans is so important is because it gives us on a regular basis, it forces us to stop and be thankful. It forces us to stop and recognize what we have and what God has done. And when we build in a maintenance schedule of gratitude, when we find times on a regular basis, whether that be annually or monthly or weekly, I'd even encourage you somehow to do it on a daily basis. When we have a maintenance schedule of gratitude, that will help to keep the engine of your soul running smoothly. Gratitude helps to keep you on track and working right And Israelites knew this, and Joshua knew this as someone who had been a slave, who had been delivered. Can you imagine? He had a front row seat to the Red Sea. He's with Moses. He's leading. And they get right up to the Red Sea, and they turn around and realize that Pharaoh's called a parade in their honor, right? He's coming back to get them. And they got the water this way. They got the Egyptians coming this way. And then God does this miracle and the Red Sea parts and the Egyptians are behind them. The Israelites go across on dry, uh, dry ground and then Joshua turns around to watch God turn the water back on, right? And to see the Egyptians swept away. He didn't just hear about it. He saw it. He was there. He had a front row seat to this whole thing because he was a slave who had been delivered. Here's another word that we would describe him with though. Because one of the next places where we read about Joshua is in the book of Numbers where he is described in a way that every elementary age boy would like to be described. He's a spy, isn't he? Isn't that awesome? Moses knew that they had to go into the promised land so he wanted to know what that land was like. So he sent out the spies, right? Twelve spies. And he sent them out with their listening devices and infrared cameras and they had smartphones and they had these cars that turned into submarines. It was awesome. And he sent them out as spies to go and scout out the land. And when they came back, ten of them said, can't do it, giants are too big, walls are too strong, people are too mean, it's a really nice place, it'd be great to vacation there, but we're never going to be able to live there. Because there's no way that we'll ever be able to conquer the people that live in the promised land. But two guys said, wait a minute, if God told us that we can do this, then we can do this. We're going to put our trust and our confidence in him. One of them was Joshua. Last week we talked about the other one. one. One was Joshua, the other spy who believed God could help them do it was named, anybody remember? Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can take the promised land. We can go in there. God will help us. Because they, they had this unique um, distinction about them. What they saw wasn't based on what things looked like. Henry David Thoreau has a really interesting quote. He says, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. It's not what you look at that matters, 
It's what you see. Ten of the spies looked and they saw giants that were too big and they saw obstacles that could never be conquered. Joshua and Caleb looked at the very same things, but they saw opportunity. They saw the fact that God could help them. They saw the truth that God would be there with them. It was almost as if they were walking by faith and not by sight. That almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? You know what Paul says? We walk by faith, not by sight. Oftentimes, and I don't know if you you know this or are familiar that much with this building, but all of our offices are upstairs in this building, all the church offices. So oftentimes, if you need to get to someplace in the building, the quickest way to get there is not to go all the way over to the elevator or the stairs and come down like you might do if you're coming up here in the sanctuary. But the quickest way for us oftentimes is to take a shortcut from downstairs through some of the other theaters that you can go through, or the old theaters, the auditoriums, and you can go through there, and that's the quickest way. The trick is, though, that the lights for this place can't be turned on right there at the top of the theater. So that means if you're going to go through that auditorium to get down to the bottom, you've got to do it in the dark. You've got to walk down that way. Now, it's not that big of a deal anymore. We've been doing it for years, and it's not that big a deal. The only time it's a problem is when Pastor Bill hides in there waiting for me. <laughs> and I've forgiven him because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? And uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's not that big a deal. Except there's been times when I've, I've, I've said, hey, come on down. We'll go this way. With, somebody's with me. And they're like, but it's dark in there. It's like, yeah, I know. Come on, sissy. Right? And... Uh, you do. Here's why. Because if you look kind of down the sides, there's those little runway lights. You can kind of see where you're going. And then I know the place. I know what's at the bottom. I know where I'm going. I know where my, my confidence is and what my destination is. See, Joshua and Caleb couldn't see it all, but they knew what they were looking for. They knew what they saw when they looked there. And they decided, we do this by faith, not by sight. Even though I can't clearly see every step that's in front of me, I do know who does know. And I know where I'm going. If I put my confidence in him, he'll help me one step at a time. So I move in this way. I walk by faith, not by sight, even if sometimes it feels like I'm moving in the dark. That's what was beautiful about Joshua. We get a snapshot of this when we read about him as a spy in numbers. We see it expanded all throughout the book of Joshua. He was a person of incredible faith. He wasn't just a spy. He, he was doing faith espionage. He was allowing God to lead him and direct him. He was a slave who'd been delivered, who was a spy. But just like all the rest of the Israelites, he was, he was a wanderer. He knew what it was like because when the spies came back and they said, we can't do this, what God said was, then if you don't think you can go in there, you won't. You've rebelled against me. So you Israelites who left Egypt won't go into the promised land. We talked about this last week, but your children will, the next generation will. None of you who came out of Egypt, who are adults, will go into the promised land except for two people, Joshua and, you remember, (laughs) Caleb. They were the only two that were allowed to go. And so they spent those 40 years wandering in the wilderness with the Israelites, knowing that someday, once all the the whiners died off, they'd be able to go in. Do you think they walked through the camp counting the whiners? Hey, Caleb, 300 left, and then we're in. That's it. A few more good funerals, and then it's all good, buddy. It's all good. I don't know if they thought that way. I do know this. I know what they saw. They saw that when they ran out of water and Moses went up to that rock and God worked a miracle where water came out of a rock and God provided for them, they saw that and it was amazing. When they ran out of cereal and didn't know what they'd eat for breakfast the next morning, they walked out of their tent and every day God gave them manna, right? And then they'd scoop it up and they'd make manna bread and they'd make manna cotti, right? I mean, they would do all those things. 
It was a wonderful, wonderful blessing. When they didn't have meat, God sent them quail. This was what God did for them. He provided for them while they were wandering in the wilderness. Even though God had given them promises, they did not have them yet. They had to wait for that time, which sounds very much like you and I. Here's here's the truth. You and I, in a certain sense, are wanderers in this life, aren't we? If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we know that we have his forgiveness, and we have his grace, and we have his peace, and we have the hope of living in heaven with him. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but have you heard that this world's not perfect yet? There's trouble and there's trials and there's difficulties and there's circumstances and there are challenges and there's misunderstandings and there's division that comes between people. And if you haven't seen it up close recently, just look, probably the closest epicenter of this that we know in our world right now is a little place called Ferguson, Missouri. Have you heard about that? Where the things that divide us become critically in front of us and can have a tendency to divine us. And as followers of Jesus Christ, shouldn't we live different than that? Look, I, I don't know what, what your stance is on certain things. Here's what I know Scripture says. Scripture says that because of what Jesus Christ did for us, then all the walls that divide us have been knocked down. True? And it doesn't matter if it's gender or if it's race or if it's age. It doesn't matter. What's Paul say? Jew or Gentile? He says those walls are gone. And so it's important for us as followers of Jesus Christ to realize that even though we're not in heaven yet, we are called as the people of God to live out the promises of God in this life. Isn't that true? And so that changes the way we think and that changes the way we treat our neighbor and that changes the way we treat people who are different than us. And it's important that we recognize that, that the people of God should display the traits of the promise of God while we wander here on earth. Joshua was a wanderer. You know what else he was? I love, I love this story. First time we're introduced to him, Exodus chapter 17. He was a warrior. Joshua was a warrior. First time we see his name, Exodus chapter 17, they've left Egypt. They're into this, this wandering as they're on their way out of Egypt. They've been delivered, and these people called the Amalekites come to fight the Israelites. And Moses goes, look, we don't, we don't know what to do. We've not been in this spot before. Somebody's got to take care of this. So Moses calls a young man to lead the army. The young man's name is Joshua. And Joshua goes out to lead the army. So they round up the troops and they head out that way. They strap on their swords. They go out into battle. And what's interesting, they go out into battle. And as they go out into the field, Moses goes up on a hill far away. <laughs> so he can watch this. Was it because he was trying to run away from duty? No, Moses went up there to pray. He went up there to watch and see what was going on. And he had his staff, which symbolized God's presence and his power with them. And Moses went up with two people. One was his brother Aaron, who, who represented the priests. Another was a, was a hymn named Her. Have you heard about Aaron and Her? And so Aaron and Her are up there with Moses. And when Moses would lift his arms like this, when he would pray and when he would lift his hands... Israel would win the battle. When his arms got tired and he put them down, Israel would start to lose the battle. And Joshua's trying to figure out what's going on. Who's flipping the switch on this thing, right? And finally Moses says, I've got to hold my arms up. So Aaron and a hymn named her help him hold his arms up because as long as his arms are up, then they can win the battle. It's this powerful truth that we see not only there, but we watch it all throughout the book of Joshua, that when God brings us victory in battle, he does it as this two-way street. On the one hand, you and I have to strap on the sword and go out and do our part. On the other hand, victory does not come unless God brings it, right? It's both the sword 
And it's also the staff. It's the work of man and it's the presence of God. And that's how victory happens in our lives. That's where it comes. And there's something, I don't know, touching that happens at the end of this story. If you read it in Exodus chapter 17, at the end, Moses says, write this down. Make a record of what happened today and make sure Joshua reads it. Make sure Joshua knows what happened here today. Because he's going to need to remember that when you go out into battle, God is there to help you. And when you do your part, God does his part and he helps you to find victory. Joshua was a great warrior. Here's something else that he was. And I think this is, this is key. This is critical for us to recognize. He was an assistant. For the first season of his life, after he was a slave, he was Moses' assistant. Now, many of us want to lead. We have this desire. I want to be a leader. I want to be a leader. I want to do something great. I want to be used. But here's the truth from Scripture. You can't be a leader unless you're a servant first. Isn't that true? And Joshua knew how to serve. He knew how to come alongside of Moses. And he was Moses' assistant. And as that, he was there and stood as his bodyguard at times. As that, he was his traveling companion. As that, he was there to help Moses. You read through Exodus and Numbers and you see these times when Moses is is watching things and Joshua says, Moses, did you see that? Moses, did you know you're doing that? At times, he was even a tattletale. Look at them over there. Moses, they're worshiping a false uh, idol. Moses, did you see this? He was Moses' assistant, which gave him then, and this is, I think this is so powerful, gave him a front row seat to things that no other Israelite saw. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law from God, when Moses had a face-to-face with God, do you know who went with him? Joshua. says that he was there, that he stood by Moses' side when Moses came back and was there at the tent, that Joshua was Moses' assistant. And so no wonder when we get to the book of Joshua... It's no wonder that Joshua is so committed to the law of God. It's no wonder that Joshua is so concerned that the people follow the practices of the law because he was there when it happened. He knows that this wasn't just something that Moses made up. It literally came from God when Moses had a face-to-face encounter with God. This is why there's this powerful theme all throughout the Old Testament. And you see it when you read Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's in Leviticus, and then you see it lived out in Joshua. It's this idea, it's a word that we don't use that often. It's a word called holiness. We don't talk about being holy that much. But when we read the law, there's things that don't make sense to us. Why did the Israelites have to do this, or why couldn't they do that? And for most of it, the reason is because God is calling his people to be holy. Not just then, but today as well. What does that word mean? What is that idea of holiness all about why was it so important to Moses and Joshua and why is it so important that in the New Testament God says that we need to be holy like he's holy here's the problem oftentimes we think of holiness as rules and regulations we think of it just as right and wrong what I can do and even more when we talk about holiness we think about what we can't do well, I can't do that, and I can't do this, and I can't go there, and I can't go over here. There's all these things that I can't do, and that's what we refer to holiness as. Here's the deal. It's so much more than that. This is, uh, this, is, this is my wedding ring, and I haven't worn one for about three months. Things have been kind of tough at home. You think that's funny. Um, that's not the reason why. 
Here, here's what happened. About three months ago, at the end of August, I was playing basketball with, with, uh, with my kids. And I went up for a rebound, because I was dominating them over them all, like I always do. And, and I went up, you know, for a rebound. And when I did, the ball came right down on the very tip of my ring finger. And right away, you know that feeling where you're just like, that is not good. And I immediately knew that my finger had that feeling like it was going to start swelling up. Do you, know, do you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, if I leave that ring on there, I'm going to have to have a little visit to somebody to cut it off. So I pulled it off right away and thought, no big deal. And I iced it and did all this stuff. And then I couldn't get the ring over the knuckle. Like it was stuck there. So I talked to a friend who's a doctor, and they were like, well, you just you give it a little bit of time, watch what happens. So I gave it some time, still wasn't working. Took the ring back, said, hey, I can't, I can't get it over the knuckle. Can we resize it? We tried to get it resized. They couldn't resize it. So eventually, just this last week, um, to, to probably the dismay of a lot of ladies, I got a wedding ring back. And um, it's a joke, all right? I'm trying to wake you up. I'm just trying to wake you up, okay? Okay? Um, and it was really weird to not wear it for three months after having it on my finger every day for about 21 years. Here's why. This ring does not mean that I'm married. Was I married when I wasn't wearing it? (laughs) Yeah, I'm married. Here's what this ring means. This ring's a a symbol. And it says to the world, sorry, ladies, I'm taken, right? Isn't that what it says? Here's why. It says that I have made a commitment to someone important in my life And this is an outward sign of their priority in who I am and what I do. Holiness is a symbol of an inward commitment. It's an outward sign that there is a priority in relationship with someone else, so it changes who I am and what I do. Holiness was Israel's wedding ring. It told the world around them, we belong to someone. Our relationship with our God is more important than what your culture says. It's more important than what you think is right. It's more important even than my own pleasure and what I want to do. This holiness is a symbol, not of right and wrong. It's a way of me saying that I belong to someone and that relationship has meaning. See, when we decide to be people who live according to the values of Scripture, it's not because we're trapped and we have to live that way. It's a symbol that says my relationship to Jesus means more to me than anyone else. Does that make sense? So that's what this is all about. Joshua had a front row seat to this. He was there when the law was given. He saw it happen. So no wonder he said to the Israelites, we must be people who are holy because he was right there. And it didn't take long for him to realize that one day this assistant was going to be the heir. That he was the heir apparent to Moses' leadership. Could you imagine what it would be like to realize that someday you've got to follow Moses? Moses. If you talk about great leaders in the Old Testament, who's at the top of the list? Moses. You've got to follow Moses. Charisma, courage, leadership, wisdom. And even the Bible says that he was one of the most humble people who has ever lived Joshua, you get to follow Moses. How's that feel? And yet, God says that in the midst of that task, that Joshua had hands placed on him, and that God filled him with wisdom and with the Spirit of God. And some of you see a task in front of you that you say is way too big, and my encouragement to you would be, one, you ain't following Moses, and number two, God will help you. He'll give you what you need to be the leader that he's called you to be. And we saw this 
We saw this as we got into the book of Joshua. And we got to chapter 1. And this phrase was repeated over and over again. And we've been in this this book of Joshua since, what, September. We've been walking kind of chapter by chapter through this. Next week will be our last week to talk about the book of Joshua. But if you only remember one thing, I hope it's this phrase. If you only hang on to one truth from this, I think that these words that God spoke to Joshua were not just for Joshua, but they were for everyone who is a, is, is a child of God, who is trying to live out the promises of God. When Joshua said, how am I going to do this? How am I going to be able to lead these people? God said to him, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I don't know where you're at, and I don't know what you're going through, but here's a word from God to you. It was a word to Joshua, and I believe it's for you today. Be strong and courageous. Here's the deal. The times, have you ever felt like you weren't strong? (laughs) Have you ever felt like you weren't that courageous? In fact, I usually do when I come up against the things that God has in store for me. And oftentimes I face these things. And if I don't feel a little bit of weakness and a little bit of uncertainty, then maybe I'm not fully following God and what he has for us. But he calls us to be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. But put your trust and your confidence in him. And God took this leader and made him a victor. See, there's the difference. You can be a leader and not be victorious. But God helped Joshua to be victorious. And we don't have time to go through all the stories today. In fact, we've, we've already done it. Do you remember when they came up to the Jordan River and it was in its flood stage? This torrent of water and they're not sure what to do. And God gives Joshua instructions and they begin to step out into the water. And miles down the road, God just turns the faucet off, right? And they go across on dry ground. ground. It's this amazing thing. And then they get to Jericho where the walls are so high and the challenge is ominous. And God says, hey guys, take a walk for seven days and trust me. And what happens? God brings the walls down. He sets up an ambush at Ai. He helps them when they fight at Gibeon. Do you remember the story a couple weeks ago when the sun stood still? God gave them victory. And Joshua realized this. He realized that when you trust God, when you rely on him, when you are strong and courageous, he will give you the victory. Let me just give you two other things about Joshua that you you probably don't think about. One is this, that in a certain sense, Joshua was a prophet. Because he pointed us, not just to the Israelites going into the promised land, but he pointed us to the future deliverance that God has. Do you know what Joshua's name means? Joshua's name basically means the Lord saves. The Lord who saves. That's the Hebrew form. Do you know what the Greek form is of that very same phrase? The Lord who saves. God saves. It is the name Jesus. Joshua, in a very physical, historical sense, points us to our deliverer, to the one who takes us into the promised land, Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves focusing as we go into the Christmas season. How many of you have your trees up already? Do you have your Christmas trees up? <laughs> yeah, we do. Last night. Because it's, it, we've turned a corner, right? Now we start the Christmas season. And as we get here, remember this, that in the midst of all of this, the most important thing that we remember, what it's all about, is that God sent us a deliverer to take us into the promises that he has for us. That's, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Joshua points us to. That someday there will be a deliverer who will save us. And Jesus came and he was born in that manger in a way that no one expected or saw. We remember that at Christmas, but he lived a life without sin and he died on a cross and then he was resurrected three days later and today he's alive, isn't he? And he changes our lives. 
I'm excited he's alive. None of you are, but he's alive, and that's awesome. That's awesome to know that he saves us and changes us in that way. So Joshua prophetically points us to Jesus. But one last thing. Go back to that tent. Go back to Joshua standing there, waiting to walk out and address the people. Thousands of Israelites waiting to hear one last statement from Joshua. Why was this such a decisive moment? Joshua lived a life of decisive moments. We've looked at that. We've seen that. Why was this one so important? Because Joshua knew something. If you read that account in in Joshua chapter 24, he takes them all the way back to where they were. He, He describes it as beyond the river. Now, those people weren't there, but their ancestors were. Abraham's people, Abraham's ancestors, people who worshiped false gods, not the real God, but false gods. And he knew that somehow the way we're wired as humans is to oftentimes put our hope and trust in things that really don't last. He was worried that they would go back to worship false gods. Even more, he was worried about their new neighbors. He talks about the Amorites in that verse. And he worries about them because he's concerned that the Israelites are going to get to know their neighbors and then they're going to want to worship the same gods that the Amorites worship. Here's, here's what's interesting to know. When we read about the promised land, God made the promised land, which is, which is Israel. He made it a place that these people had great and bountiful crops, right? You read about that. That's what the spies saw. God blessed that land. Even to this day, some of the most beautiful agricultural land on the planet is in the nation of Israel. And so God blessed it in that way. But here's what the Amorites did. They worshipped false gods. In fact, their gods led them to have very perverse and corrupt worship practices. And their gods were distinguished in a certain way. The Amorites worshipped what what were referred to as fertility gods. Meaning this, that they worshipped these gods and believed that the blessing that came to their land, that their crops that grew, came as a result of their worship of these false gods. Now we know that God blessed them, the one true real God that we worship. But they were quick to say, it's because we do these perverse practices. It's because we do these certain things. Because we worship these false fertility gods, God blesses us and he blesses the land. Now how was Israel going to pay the bills? How are they going to live in this new land that they've gone into? They were agricultural people. They were going to farm. They were going to raise crops. That's how they were going to survive. That was their sustenance. And so if you have a neighbor who says, hey, my crops grow because I do this. And if what they were doing was in many ways sexually and corruption wise and perversely something that would have been attractive to pull them away from the one real God. Can you see where they were walking into a minefield? Because these false gods would lead the Israelites, would entice them to want to worship things that would be destructive to them in the end. And you know who saw this? Joshua did. He was the patriarch of this family. He was an old man looking years down the road. And he said they have got to understand that they cannot walk away from the one real God. They have got to understand that he's the one that brought us out of slavery. He's the one that has led us into this promised land. He's the one that when we did our part, he brought us victory. They cannot miss the fact that he's the one who's blessed us. And Joshua says, I'm concerned that you're going to walk away from him. Joshua's greatest fear was that a generation away, people would say that they had forgotten about God, that they did not who he was know who he was or what he had done for Israel. Wouldn't that be scary? That was Joshua's greatest fear. And so he walks out and he speaks to the Israelites. And he says this to them, Joshua 24, 
Verse 14. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. That fear is not terror. That fear is respect that he's talking about. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you. Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Does he give them much of an option? He doesn't say go home and think about it. He doesn't say, you know, do your research. He says, look, right now. This moment. Where we stand. You need to make a call. You need to make a decision. Choose for yourselves this day. Go back to verse 15. He says, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That wasn't just something cute. It wasn't just something that Joshua threw out there. I don't think he said it and then said, oh, that's good. I should put that on a plaque. That would look great in my mom's tent, right? Do you think he thought that? She'd be so proud of me. No, you know what that was? That was a battle cry. That was Joshua saying, look, the line is drawn right here, Israel. And if you're going to serve the Lord, that that means you're not going to serve other gods. That you're going to make a decision that for you and your house, you will serve the Lord. And you know what it said to the rest of the world around him? This was a counter-cultural statement. This was a war call. This was a declaration to say, I am making a stand right now in this place. This is my identity. This is who I am. This is what I'll fight for. This isn't just cute. This isn't just some kind of trite saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So recognize that when you put that on your wall, it's more than just something that looks good that you got from Hobby Lobby, right? This is a declaration. What you have to decide is what is it at your house? Is it a decoration or a declaration? Are you making a statement or are you just trying to look cool? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is it just a statement or are you taking a stand? Is it on your wall? Or is it in your soul? Is this just a facade that you put up so when your neighbors come over, they'll know that when you leave on Sunday mornings, you're not just going to breakfast, right? Is this just a facade? Or is this something you'll fight for? Is it just some cool idea on your wall? Or is it the identity of who you are? Is it a decoration or is it a declaration? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, odds are you're not going to chase after fertility gods so that you can have good crops. If you are, let's talk after service, all right? But we chase after other gods. We chase after the God of money. And we chase after the God of fame and power. 
We chase after the God of looks. We chase after the God of popularity. We chase after the God of being full of ourselves or feeling good about ourselves. And we could list these things on and on and on. And what happens is we make all kinds of things our God in our household. And we do it in the things we watch and the things we say. And we do it in the things that we make our priorities. And what happens is our households begin to fall apart because we don't fight for this truth. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this isn't just a cool little phrase can you see where joshua stood and said this is a decisive moment this is where i stand dad what's the most important thing in your home is it as for me and my house we will serve the lord mom can your kids actually see jesus lived out in your life when you go to school would anybody know that this might have ever come from your lips When you have to make critical decisions about ethics in the workplace, does this matter to you? Would anybody be surprised if they saw this over your dining room table? When temptation comes your way, when you're challenged to make decisions, you're not so sure what to do. Is the filter that you walk through life this, that as for me and my house, it's not just a decoration, it's a declaration. We will serve the Lord. You know what I'm calling you to today? I'm calling you to a decisive moment. To a moment where you say, I will take a stand. And if you haven't already, that you make that decision today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a journalist. Her name is Amanda Ripley. And she wrote a book called Unthinkable. And what she does in her book is she she profiles times when people go through unthinkable circumstances. How do they survive disasters? And what her research is really trying to figure out is why do some people survive disasters when other people don't? And so she talked to countless survivors. She interviewed people who had been through fires and floods and hurricanes and airplane crashes. And in the process of this, she found that when you face a disaster, you go through three phases. The first is this, denial. I can't believe I'm in this spot. I can't believe I'm here. The second phase is deliberation. Now what do I do? How do I respond? The third phase that we go through in times of crisis is what she would call a decisive moment. When we come face to face with something and say, I have to make a decision. She gives a story of a gentleman named Paul Heck who back in 1977 was sitting on the runway in a Pan Am 747 airplane next to his wife. There were uh, 396 passengers on board. And as they were just about to take off in the heavy fog, what happened, and they did not realize this was happening, was that another plane was coming in on the runway and the two planes collided. And this plane, as it collided with the other plane that Paul Heck was in, it ripped the top off of the plane that Paul was in. So it just kind of pulled like a, like a can, just pulled the lid off the top of this plane. And in the process, Paul's plane burst into flames, 396 people on board. And in that moment, they're trying to figure out what happens in that moment. Here's how Paul's wife described it. She said that in that moment, she went blank and she felt like a zombie. But not Paul Heck. For him, it was a decisive moment. He unbuckled his seatbelt, he grabbed his wife's hand, and he said, follow me. And then he led her through a hole on the left side of the aircraft and out into safety. That day, 328 people died on that plane. Paul was one of the 60-some survivors. And in an interview afterwards, 
They asked him what happened. And here's what he said. And compare this to people's lives. That most people just sat in their seats acting like everything was fine. Even after colliding with another plane and seeing the cabin fill with smoke. We live in a world and a culture that's on a collision course, don't we? Most of us just sit there thinking everything's going to be okay. While we watch the world around us go up in smoke. But Paul Heck noted that before takeoff, he'd studied the 747 safety diagram. And when the crisis came, Heck knew it was a decisive moment. He was prepared to make a decision and he headed for the only exit that was available to him. Are you ready for what that exit is? As for me and my house, say it with me. We will serve the Lord. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? And search your heart. Is it a decoration or a declaration? I'm calling you today to a decisive moment. That you would choose this day who you would serve. Like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit may be speaking to your heart in this moment. I don't know how God may be leading you. Here's what I know. That for some in this room, in this moment, what God's speaking to your heart is that you have been far from Him. And when I talked about the fact that Jesus had died for your sins... And that he gave his life so that you could live. You knew that in that moment. That you needed that gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness from God. That you knew you needed to begin. Or maybe even begin again today a relationship with Jesus Christ. Or maybe today. Just as we walk through Joshua's life. The Holy Spirit has, has spoken some things about you. And you know you're in a decisive moment. And that as I lead us in a prayer, the right thing for you to do today would be to affirm, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you in this moment. Lord, and we don't want that phrase to just be something that hangs on our wall, but we want it to be a declaration of our life and of our priorities that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so, Father, I I pray with the one who says today they need to make a decision to serve you. Lord, I pray with the one who says priorities need to change in our home. Father, I pray with the one who says today there there are things that in my role as a mom or a dad or as a student, as an employee, as an employer, as a neighbor, as a friend, as a as a follower of Jesus Christ, today I need to make a stand and declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so, Father, we make that our prayer in this moment, in Jesus' name, amen. As you leave today, um, friends will hand you a card that looks a little bit like this. It's just a simple reminder. It just says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's the challenge that you will, in these next few weeks, make this more of a declaration than a decoration. That you'll put it somewhere where you can be reminded of a commitment that you've made. Thanks for being here today. Pray that God's word will uh, sink deep into our hearts. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.